Hi, I'm Gregor. I'm the developer of Casebook 1899, and you're listening to the Scene World podcast. Hello, welcome to the Scene World podcast. Hello, hi. Dennis and Jörg <laughs> in the house. Um, we are here for you. <laughs> we are here for you, even for in the you. new year. Yes, indeed. Um, in a minute, I will talk to Julia Minanota, um, the creator of the upcoming EGA graphic adventure, The Crimson Diamond, which is actually in the style of the original EGA adventures from Sierra from the 80s. And um, that's pretty, pretty neat. And the first chapter can actually already be played um, on Steam. And sh as she says in the interview, she plans to finish the game this year. So, but before we go to that, we have some news, some retro news. And um, that is what we are here for. Um, for example, the professional NASCAR race driver, Ross Chastain, actually did a move in a recent race last year where he well slided along the <laughs> the um how to say the rail of the course with his car after bumping into it to gain speed momentum and go to the first um place and um he actually made a little interview where he said he learned that from NASCAR Racing 2005 on the PlayStation 2 when he was a kid. And um, we have a video of that that's coming from Twitter. And actually the move, it has been fossilized, so it's forbidden for future races because it's such a... But he survived, such, right? He survived. Just he survived, of course. No, in, no, no injuries. Okay, you know, those NASCAR fine. Racing cars are tough. That's fine. I'm not sure if as as tough as remote, uh, but tough nevertheless. Yeah, I'm not I'm not such a pro in regarding NASCAR, but I, I heard Jörg, you are the fan of racing games. Uh, I'm the fan of racing yeah. games, exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Just like future racers, like Wipeout, probably, but um, mm, okay. not so much See. into cars. I'm more into spaceships. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So you are a Star Citizen fan as well? Yeah, I think so. I'm more the science fiction guy. The game that never finishes. I'm out of space always. Uh, out of space always. <laughs> I see. <laughs> yeah, and um, well, staying in the realm of scandals, perhaps, there's a new video from Slope's Game Room on YouTube. Um, the Intellivision Amigo Scandal. Um, slash crowdfunding documentary going four hours, four hours of entertainment from from the beginning to the, well, present, because the, the company is surprisingly still around. We are still waiting for the console, goddammit. And, and even at some place, a fraction of the footage um, I I well, I created by interviewing Tommy about his past, even found its way into the documentary. 
so they they recognize scene world that's pretty nice um yeah we never lose hope we never lose hope that's true never lose yeah hope. there's probably some hope probably not i don't know well well people ask me you pre-ordered the console right no <laughs> i didn't <laughs> <laughs> lucky you, lucky you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, inviting in, inviting um, in television workers to the podcast or to um, to Gamescom retro panel doesn't automatically mean that I believe the console will see the day of life. So I was a bit skeptical, um, to be honest. At, uh, you know, yeah. We'll anyway, see. We'll see. Maybe it will be a surprise in, ne in the next. 25 years or so. The, then the joke is on me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, not losing hope. Um, yeah. After over a year, um, Strictly Limited actually uh, delivered the Terrican Ultra, Ultra Collection Edition that I ordered for the Switch. There's also a version for the PS4, but since I have no PS4, I ordered the uh, Switch version. And The trick is to email the customer support to make a split order to ship the figurine that is still in production and delayed at a later point free of free of shipping. So so with that email that I want a split of my order, I got the game and everything else, soundtrack and so on, in the special case earlier instead of waiting a few months down the road until the figurine is actually the action figure or I don't know I don't know if it's an action figure probably not a probably not an action figure probably if just a figurine um, is is finished um yeah well no that's quite nice so I know what I will do on the weekend I will definitely play play the the collection and play yeah, some Terrican. It, it's, a, it's a nice collection, and uh, I think Strictly Limited always delivers in the end. Probably takes longer in some projects, but uh, I think they deliver. I mean, Signature this signature Edition and um, a Limited Run, their two competitors, are not faster. Yeah. But Indeed. as I hinted with the vintage, um, the modern vintage gamer in that interview, the difference is The way they ship mm, and the yeah. way they package. I yeah. mean, there is a letter enclosed, and of course, the letter has um, pig ears. Oh, yeah, okay. of course, of course, yeah. yeah. I don't know what they do with their shipping. I, I don't know. I mean, I mentioned it in the vintage, um, uh, in the modern vintage gamer interview, the um, special edition uncut releases from Terrican One and Two. For the Super Nintendo, they both arrived with the package being in bubble wrap and being dented oh. inside the, the box without the outer box being damaged, despite being in bubble wrap. So it must be something they do after production or during production that is damaging or packaging it wrong. I don't know. But what whatever they are doing, it's not good. Um, yeah. Yeah, anyway. I know you can't say anything about that, but um, well, I I also ordered your um, one of your um, albums for the Mega oh, Drive. Okay. That, that, Which one? 
Ah, for the Mega Drive, okay. Yeah, yeah the, the one that was out of, well, out of print from, yes. from your band camp. Yes. And, um, well, it has an air bubble oh, in, in the yeah. label area. It's such, it's such, I don't know, it's such, it's such um, a weird thing, you know. And I mean, I mean, I mean, of course, I know Watermelon Games is a bad example because they are, we know Quenel, Quenel is like 100%. Everything is like finger licked. Yeah. But at least, at least put some attention how you wrap it or ship it. And it's just a, it's just inside Germany, so I don't, I mm, don't, okay. I don't want to know how it ends up when it's being shipped abroad. Um, anyway, yeah. Um, the other news that happened is a MemTest 86 Plus, the famous MemTest program, the Mem number one from the 90s, received a second update, <laughs> and the first update of this year now being able to handle. UEFI secure boot signing. Wow. So also called headless EFI. And now that means you don't have to disable secure boot in your UEFI if you want to use MemTest and boot that. That's pretty nifty. So kudos to somebody, to that guy who um, obviously from France, if I'm not mistaken, who updates his software over 30 years amazing amazing. nice, nice. Yeah, yeah i mean yeah. i i still remember this tool from the dos times as a kid you know your computer is crashing run mem test and see if if one of them ram sticks is broken you know memory sticks is broken so nice memories of mem test well wow. yeah <laughs> mem test yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, and the newest version is called MemTest 86 Plus version 6.10. Nice, right? Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, last, not best least, we have some beautiful news. And that is the former PR responsible person of Dedelic Entertainment, Sandra Friedrichs, is actually in the finals of Miss Germany. Wow. Yeah. Nice. In a few days, it can actually be um, seen live via Twitch. Well, obviously in German, but um, we will link to that anyway. I think she she got my vote. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I will vote for her. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. Nice. <laughs> yeah. We well, wish her, we wish her good luck and much yeah. success. Well, in the final means, there are nine others yeah. that compete against her, so she has a, a good chance to, to, to win. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Amazing. And that would be all my news. All right. All so. five of them. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we proceed to, the, to our interview guests. Should be very interesting today. Yes. I mean... She is working since 14 years on that game. Wow. I would, I would be, I would be totally devastated if my project took that long. But indeed. other people have patience. Indeed, so, indeed. Wow, yeah. 14 years. That's yeah. quite long. I mean, you could do something like that. The never-ending album, always in production. I did a, a thing like this, releasing tracks 
for every week from 2011 until 2017, that, uh, six, six years. But after six years, I was pretty much done with it. And um, I can't imagine doing stuff similar like this anymore. It's pretty exhausting. I think projects should be finished much faster, but um, that's just my opinion. I mean, or take another example, Jeroen's Tell, Tell Me More album. We are waiting for it since eight years. Okay. Since he started the Indiegogo campaign, which was successful. If we ever will see the day of light with that, yeah. nobody knows. That's quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, well, so that's it. So enjoy the enjoy. Intro. Exactly. Bye bye. Awesome. So today we have another guest as usual in our podcast. And today it's Julia Minalmata. And you are actually known to be working on an EGA graphic text parser game. And it's called the Crimson Diamond. And um, that's super interesting because EGA, um, before, before, before I saw the, the YouTube video of the speedrun of the <laughs> Colonel uh, Speed Quest, where you have been invited as an expert, I didn't even know that EGA games are still a thing. So uh, that's super <laughs> amazing. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean, when, when I got my first PC in 93, we all, I already had VGA. So mm -hmm. EGA is something I knew I could switch it to, but I always skipped. So perhaps let's start with how did it happen for you to get into computers and stuff? Well, my dad actually started uh, started all out. He was he loved to be an early adopter. He liked to have computers in the house. I've had computers in the house ever since I was a kid. His first one was uh, I think it was called a it was a compact, but it wasn't really compact. It was by compact. It was those uh, the thirty pound suitcase type portable so-called computers that he got to take home from work if he was going to do some work from home and uh, it was like a tandy kind of 1000 kind of green monochrome with the keyboard that folded out with the telephone cord attaching and uh, you know we got our first exposure to dos games like um, king's quest one and uh, some space games and some some pinball games and everything and i was just hooked to it from that point on and we eventually did get our own desktop computer but the, ver the first computer actually we did have that actually was not the compact. It was a VIC-20, a Commodore VIC-20. And I know you guys, this is Scene World, so you guys are Commodore 64 um, focused. And I was excited to be able to talk a little bit about and show a little few of the boxes because I never get to show these things ever. Sure. Um, so sure. if I could indulge, if you can indulge me just for a few minutes. Um, <laughs> I've got, this one's pretty common, I think. You got your Congo Bongo. Oh, yeah, Congo Bongo was also released for the Commodore 64, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, wow, it, just, it made me disappear. That's how. Oh, no, where did. Oh, no, the magic trick. <laughs> because of the background, it doesn't okay. recognize you as a human anymore. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> okay, the other one, I, I only have three I wanted to show. Um, the second one is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to disappear for a second. Master type. Awesome. Oh, that I, did, I don't know that one, actually. Yeah. This is, yeah, it's for the VIC-20. I don't know if they have a C64 version. And this other one, I, this is my favorite one, the last one, best for last. It's a Zonox Double Ender, two video games in one cartridge. Oh, this one is. Whoa. Uh, this one is Motocross Racer and Tomark the Barbarian. 
And so Never this heard one. Of that. Okay. So if you look at it, so you even got the manual and everything here. Wow. Um, so if you look at the, because this is yeah, so this is like a double-ended thing. So you've got one end is that one. Oh, and the other is end is this one, the other game. So there's actually a both ends here. I didn't know the Big Twenty had double cartridges. Interesting. So yeah, that's. I just wanted to share that because yeah, so, I mean, I know you guys are mostly um, did you guys you guys do Commodore sixty four. So I wanted to start off with a little bit of that, but that was my first computer experience. <laughs> um, I yeah. Can this back now. yeah, it's 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 hard to make some guess clear that we are not only Commodore yes. sixty four, despite we we do the disk mag also. But yeah, true, true. Uh, so so Vic twenty, and then the Compaq, and then we got you know we started getting our our own um, computers, and. Um, I think this is not an uncommon experience. I've talked to a few people, but there is this, if your dad ever worked in an office and liked games, there was like this network of game pirating office dads where, you know, floppies would be exchanged and everything and, and uh, manuals would be photocopied at the office and stapled. Um, so that that's, that's a lot of the way we would get a lot of our games growing up would be that way. But of course, you know, Christmas and birthdays were like the special times you'd actually get boxed games, right? So I mean, wow. well, got another one here. So this is this is one of the ones I like a lot. This is um, my uh, Quest for Glory 2 Trial by Fire. So this was wow. that was a Christmas or you know a Christmas or a birthday present, and and uh, that would be like the big event because you'd actually get a like the real genuine item, and and so that's that's how it got started. So when when I was growing up, yeah, it was like Tandy, and then it was CGA, EGA, VGA, and, and onward, and 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 I got to experience a lot of those games, yeah, as kind of as they were around. So I understand that you know you come you come into computer gaming at VGA that that's kind of what you're you're most familiar with, but for me. As a kid, it was the EGA stuff where that's my happy, you know, my fuzzy, warm, comforting, nice place. And uh, there are actually, you mentioned you, you weren't sure that there were other game developers making EGA games. And there are people making EGA games to this day that have these same fond memories as I do. Um, there's actually a, uh, a series, there's a, there's um, Tachyon Dreams, there's a one, two, and there's a third game coming out. There is Betrayed Alliance, one came out. It's also a text parser adventure as well. Some some EGA games, it's funny because they'll, they'll be point and click EGA games. Um, there's the Tolwinium by Dave Loy. There's a bunch. I mean, well, not a bunch, but there's enough for me to say <laughs> it's not it's not just me. Um, there's something about that palette that I think really, really <laughs> speaks to me in terms of bright super bright colors and uh, and just the way and the way that, that the um the graphics were displayed at the time because vga when it started out was low resolution and so it was kind of fuzzy looking mm, ega graphics were very true. very sharp right it was like that, that so that's kind yeah. of also an, an attraction to it i mean i mean the thing is each a and and the commodore 64 have both 16 colors but as I said each is brighter more vibrant <laughs> yes. in colors yes. has a different selection of colors. Um, yes. So that's that's true. That's true. But it's interesting because in my last email to you, I actually mentioned that many people think I'm too young to to be um, yes. retro gaming with Commodore 64. Yes. I mean, and 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 you don't look so old yourself. <laughs> so I really wonder. <laughs> well, wow. yeah, I mean, if you were born in the VGA times, so yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know, I don't want to flip the interview around on you, but how did you get exposed to Commodore 64? Because that was way before your time. My, my grandfather, my grandfather okay. got one in 84 when I was two, and I, I sent you a picture in my last yes, email, adorable, I will put it yes. here, um, <laughs> where, where I'm sitting at my grandfather Commodore 64, yes. so, and yes. in 1990, I actually got for my birthday, for my eighth birthday, my own Commodore 64. 
So uh, let me think. EGA PC was that eighty nine? Was eighty nine right? Yes, around that time. Yes, where they were starting to um, have games that would would be EVGA, and then sometimes game companies would go back and do a v an EGA version. Um, because they knew that for compatibility reasons, people might not be able to support the VGA. But yeah, I think that was kind of the time where they were really looking into coming away from the EGA and going forward more with the VGA. Yeah, 89, wow. I would say. Good genes. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know when, when, I, when I look at interviews with people and they talk about certain eras, about time frames and so on, I'm thinking like, how much can this person know possibly yeah. <laughs> uh, you know um but but then but then i also know there are researchers being way younger younger than yes. me and knowing more because they are concentrating backwards so so it's interesting so so you started out with a vic 20 and a pc at some point yeah um, yeah later having on the ega the yes okay. yes yeah later but on. but you didn't you didn't you didn't start with a cga which was before that Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so when I consider like the first desktop PC we had was like Tandy and then eventually, yeah, I probably like CGA or either that or we had a, you know, a, a computer that could run EGA. But, you know, I would play with the other graphics options at the time when you could play other things. But, yeah, I mean, my first my first one was the green. The second one was, you know, like sign white magenta. I mean, that, 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 there was definitely a progression between those. So I do mm. fondly rem remember a lot of, of CGA games back back then, not CGA, yeah. But but CGA originally didn't have just those four colors you mentioned. It had more depending on how you connected your monitor. <laughs> If you connected it right, it had much more colors. Um, I think the 8-bit guy made once a video about that topic, that a lot of people didn't know that mm -hmm, CGA mm -hmm. is not always purple, magenta, yes. whatever. Yes. So, It really depends on on uh, how you connect your monitor and stuff. Yeah, and sometimes What it was a setting in in a, in a program. I had a drawing program back then where that was CGA, but um, you could choose like different palettes, so oh. you could have you know. So yeah, it was interesting because that was one of the few times I had seen being able to actually kind of almost. I don't know if you could toggle it on the fly, but yeah, you could choose between different different three or four of those colors as you're drawing, but only you know for like the whole you know the whole thing, not just one little little aspect of it. So, so developers who developed for ZGA actually had to um, cover two palettes, depending on what setting and cable you used for the monitor. I guess <laughs> it's it's an interesting challenge. I think that we certainly don't have to consider anymore. But um, I I really enjoy seeing older versions of games, even if um, they were VGA. I like to play them in EGA. So I, I do some streaming on, on Tuesdays and uh, I do art, art, art streams where I show how I'm making the game art for my game. But at the end, I always like to, I've been playing these adventure games that I never played back in the day. And some of them were originally VGA games like Rise of the Dragon. And I like to play the EGA just to see how, you know, how that works and how much work they had to do to port it back to that, that older <laughs> concept. Downscale it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting because Because even when something was originally made in VGA, and I can pretty much say um, without bias that they did look better as in their original VGA, I still this is still this appeal to me where I want to see how that problem got solved visually with the with the fewer colors, and, and mm. so that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have this problem a lot in the home computer field, you know, or, or early consoles as well. Um, and here's the thing. Um, 
Well, I got to know you from that um, from that speedrun video mm -hmm. about the uh, Connell's uh, Bee Quest. But um, I I've read that originally you tr you made this game out of um, a necessity because in 2007 you finished your um, art studies and then you were jobless and you decided. <laughs> You decided to well. In I do something. I make graphics in EGA, and then I read because you wanted to make the character sprites animated. It suddenly turned out into an an adventure game. Is that is that a good recollection of what happened? That's a pretty good re recollection, I would say. Um, there's a there's a little bit of um a little bit of adjustment, but mostly right. Um, so I did graduate from from art college. So I did I have a like a degree in illustration. Mm. But when I yeah when I graduated, I decided I wanted to be a freelance illustrator, and I tried to become a freelance illustrator, make a career as a freelance illustrator. And I said I'm going to give myself ten years to do this and figure this all out. And so I wasn't really I mean I was technically jobless because I was self-employed. I guess it's like the same thing. Um, so I was self-employed as a freelance illustrator for ten for ten or so years, and you know working for magazines and newspapers, um, getting published stuff out there and things. Um, but graduating in around you know 2007 2008 it was a recession in 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 the US and Canada um, and um, a lot of my work and a lot of my clients are American so a lot of those magazines and everything and even still I mean we see even that today where this difficulty for print publications and even nowadays like electronic publications there's so there seems to be a lot of of turmoil surrounding these industries and it's I think yeah I mean I think that recession in 2007 2008 really kicked that off so I kind of feel like I, my timing wasn't very good uh, upon graduating, trying to make a career in illustration, really. Um, so I was trying and I was not able to get enough work and fill in my time so much. So I started looking into back into computer games and, and that kind of art, because around that time when I, you know, around, I would say, yeah, in, the, in that time between 2007 and, and maybe like 2018, I was, you know, trying to work, but then also what was happening is um, there was, you know, stuff like Steam started to become a real big thing, and 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 indie, and indie computer games, and indie adventure games, and YouTube, and YouTube, and watching people let's play adventure games, and so I'm discovering all these new games that were new um, and were made by small teams, or made by one or two people, and that started to kind of plant the seed in my head of maybe that's something I can explore or see because I could see these other people doing it and they were doing a really good job. Um, so that, that, that part. Um, and, and so I figured it's not even like I was yeah, consciously trying to make a game. As you said, I was trying to just make some characters, make some art. And then eventually it was like, yeah, I want to learn how to animate this character and I want to learn how to connect my rooms together. So they form a house and eventually a story came up in, in my mind about what I was what I was going to um, to do and eventually yeah in around 2017 2018 I, I submitted my game to something called uh, Ad, uh, wordplay 2018 and here in Toronto where I'm living and um, it's a narrative game showcase and I got in and it's usually a very it's a very competitive thing to get into and I hadn't thought I would I just wanted to try and that made me really have to focus on creating like something to show publicly to people which I hadn't had to consider at all. And, and at that time, so it gave me like a two week or three week window where I had to make sure I had something to show, like a demo and everything. And that's kind of where my first public showing of the game was. And I just got really good feedback from it and it was super motivating. And from that time forward, I've been, you know, putting more time into that until I'm pretty much exclusively trying to work either on my own game 
or in the, in the intervening between 2018 and now, I've you know been doing contract work as well. I worked on something called Space Warlord Organ Trading Simulator that that uh, launched um 2021 December. Um, also something uh, called Witch Strandings. Those are both with Strange Scaffold, and I also got to art direct a Playdate game, and and so what I found is that you know I was none of that stuff was stuff I had planned on doing ever, but I get to, I got these wonderful opportunities through working on my own game. And it's been a super enriching experience in a way that my original plan of becoming a freelance illustrator, just it didn't have those same opportunities. And so that, that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm just right now trying to work on my game and hopefully, hopefully uh, launch it this year after all this time. I mean, you became a VIP in that industry, right? <laughs> I did? <laughs> I, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Interestingly, um, it appears you have been working on the game since 15 years, really? Yeah, you did really good research. <laughs> of course, of course. I did the research before I emailed you. <laughs> I'm a little scared about how much research you've done. Yes, indeed. Yeah, so um, I do have an, I had an illustration blog where I was you know, showing my illustration work and then it started to eventually become a game development blog. And yeah, you can see my very first posts of like rooms I was working on on that blog. And yeah, they're, they're like 2009 maybe, yeah. Something maybe it's even earlier, something like that. Um, so I was working on it bit by bit and I would um, make a room and then tinker with it leave, it, leave it alone for, you know, a few months, get busy, come back to it when I wasn't busy. And I'd keep on doing that and I realized that I'm actually like a lot, I'm getting less and less busy over time with the illustration. And so I can put more and more time into this. And actually, maybe I should gain some momentum while I'm working on this instead of just leaving it and then forget where I left off and coming back to it and trying to reorient myself in the project. So I would, I, I said after 2018, when I, like this was fall 2018, and I, when I showed the game, I thought, you know, I'm going to focus on this and try to do this. So I, you know, got a website and I started, you know, being on Twitter more and Facebook group, things like that. Um, and um, in 2019, it's actually funny that this is actually good timing because um, so 2019 spring, there's something called the Ubisoft Indie Series in Toronto. And it's this thing where you have 10 finalist studios and you're all competing for like $50,000 or something like that. And I submitted to this thing, not thinking I would get into the finalists at all because you do this application and they say uh, th the maximum number of people in your studio can is 50. So the, I'm thinking I'm, just, I'm at a completely different scale than these people because I'm just one person, you know, except for the music, I'm, I'm the only person working on this. So I just, I applied because I said, what the heck, I'm just going to apply. And so I did get to be one of the finalists, which was shocking. And it, But it was another ex experience of, oh, people actually are responding really well to what I'm making, which was also help, super encouraging. But to just today it was announced, there's another game, I spoke of other projects I've worked on. So there's another game called Strange Dungeon, which my uh, my friend and my old college college classmate Ilya is working on Strange Dungeon. It's sort of like a, a, a turn-based, like roguelike type of a game. And it just got into the finalist uh, for Ubisoft Indie Series for 2023, which is really exciting. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's... um. Uh, I, uh, I've been so yeah, working on, on the game on and off for a number of years, but really focusing in, like, I would say maybe 2019 to now, really trying to build it. So a lot of it's been built like in that time, way more than even the, the, the first you know, 10 years of the game development. It, there's so much more of the game has been built in that time just because I've given myself that time. Is that the reason why the fir first chapter has been released three years ago? Yes. Yeah, so it's funny because, yeah, I, I, I released that. Because I had to, I, I released it for um, the indie, the uh, the wordplay thing. I well, I didn't even think it was public 
it was publicly released probably 2019. I'm guessing you might actually know. I don't know when I first. Well, I mean, it says release. It released date February 5th, 2020. That's what it says. Oh. what it says on Steam. I don't oh, know how much how much correct that is. Oh well, that's because that was the most recent version of the demo, probably because I've I've updated the demo in different ah. different times. Um, so that's the most recent iteration of the demo, probably. But ah, okay, so it's because the demo is a separate entry in in Steam. Yes, yes. So that was an experiment I was doing um, because there there are a few ways you can put stuff up on Steam. So that is there's a Steam store page for the Crimson Diamond, and then there's a Steam page for the Crimson Diamond Chapter One, and that one is set as a free to play game. So that one. So that the idea was. Oh, maybe people would be attracted to having it be something that's considered free, and then they would try that, and then they'd wish list the other game, the other, the other. That's what page. I did. It worked. Yes, yes. Honey it's potted. Little... I was oh. honey potted. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. It, so that's the thing, because I mean, I um, when you know, you go to these events, and you talk to other developers, and they tell you these things that they tried that actually worked really well for them. And I thought, you know what? What the heck? I'll give that a try. They it's never a little tell bit... me, but you're <laughs> you're the first time telling me. Oh, okay. Well, um, there now you know. And I see the thing is, is that it's a little confusing for people too. I yeah. understand that. Um, so it was just something I thought I'd try, and I, I can understand why people would would have questions about how that's set up. But the hope is that yeah, people will will be attracted to the free tag, right? And then they'll Brooke. get to what. Okay. Ladies, <laughs> ladies, I, I found the intro music and the lengthy intro uh, amazing. I was like, oh, that's very atmospheric. That's perfect. Oh, good, I'm glad. To get it is in, long. In in the game, uh, I mean, I'm old school. I like long. Long okay, is good. perfect. Long is perfect. Oh, <laughs> so I was like, I was totally hooked. I actually, saw in the discussion forum, you you said on a few people's questions as an answer, you said you will release an updated version, erasing yes. some bugs once. The game is finally out in March, March this year. No, see, oh my goodness. So here's another thing. Um, that was, I don't know when I, when did I say the March thing? I don't know. It says on Steam. It says the final no, but version what, what, is. You, I, <laughs> I've is, moved the date a few times. That, that's why. So I might have said that in a year or two ago, maybe. Hmm. Uh, I keep, I keep moving it back. So I wonder when I last said it was March. And honestly, as before we even got on this call, it, the Steam page for the store page, if you had checked it, it would have said launching in March. It's, it's I checked it. I have it open right now. If you, but if you hey, uh, if you refresh that page, I just changed it to to uh, when 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 it um, went to be announced. Oh, to be announced, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, because <laughs> in the Steam so dashboard, it, it said it's supposed it, to uh, say that. I I opened it an hour yeah. ago, actually. Yes, because <laughs> I on the weekend I realized that it said March, and I said, oh no, it says March. Um, on this on my Steam dashboard, it said it's supposed to display like this, and I hadn't thought twice about mm. it because I'm always logged into my own my own mm. Steam, so I thought it was just. Um, displaying as March for me because that mm. was the secret internal launch date that was mm. going to be pushed back anyway. No, it's so. said that for everybody. But oh dear. I, but I watched some interviews you gave and you said quarter second second quarter. Yes, I've been saying that now. That's my most recent. Um, my most recent. I don't want to call it a promise, but that's my most recent <laughs> announcement for that. Uh. Um, yeah, it's it's the thing is it's my first game project and everything always takes longer. And I wish didn't do of the course. thing. You know, the, the first piece of advice for any person starting out in game development is start small, start with a small project and just get through that and like learn how to create a game from start to finish all the way to launch and then post launch what happens there. And I did not do that. This is my first yeah. project. It's it's going to. Yeah, I, I did. Yeah. It's it's going to be like 10 hour, probably game, something like that. Um, like that, you know, that seven to 10 hour type of it's going to be seven, um, seven chapters. So 
Wow. I I messed that up, but hopefully, you know, it'll it'll be fine. Lucky you you didn't do any Kickstarter or something. That would oh be goodness. even more extreme. Yeah. Oh my yeah, it, I'm really lucky. Um, I don't have a lot of external pressure on me, really. Besides, like people just being so nice and saying, "Oh, I can't wait for this to come out," which I don't consider pressure. I just consider that really nice. Um, yeah, I, I'm self-publishing, so there's no publisher saying anything. Kickstarter, yeah, I didn't even like. I didn't even really consider that because I just know that it's almost like a second job. And already, if you're going to do a game and you're the solo dev on it, you have already all the jobs. You don't need more jobs. So the idea of <laughs> doing Kickstarter okay. as an additional, no, I'm okay. not. I'm not going to cancel. Okay. Huh. Awesome. So um, I did some research and I think the game is supposed to be similar to what they call um, the Laura Bow series. Yes, yes, yes indeed. It, um, I've always loved mysteries. So ever since you know, I was a kid, loved watching Columbo. I loved... Um, you know, uh, Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmes, all these things. And I kind of get that from my mom. She loved the mystery stuff. And my dad loved computers. And this is kind of that combination. And, and the Colonel's Bequest was also a combination of that. And the setting being this big house, that was, it was my first um, inspiration for when I was making my own pixel art. What I want to look at as my reference, visual reference for that. And because the art is, um, so Sierra had a couple of graphical engines that they went through while they were making games. The SCI Zero engine was the one that Colonel's Bequest was made in, and it's my favorite engine it because it gave the most amount of detail and it gave you the opportunity to do dithering, which is like this idea of checkerboarding two colors together to make a third color visually, which I consider like a form of magic. Um, and Colonel's Bequest to me did it the best. And Doug Herring, so Doug Herring is the artist. I just want to give him a shout out because he just... Not only at that time when they were making these games, not only were they making this art where they had, didn't have anything to look at, really, to develop the look that they were making. And they were not only doing that, but they were developing the tools at the same time. And I have so much respect for that because nowadays we, it's so much easier for us where I can do pretty much everything. I have, you know, the Photoshop and I can just put stuff up on Steam and there's none of this logistics and warehousing and, and figuring out, like, designing technology to fit my needs. Um, so super lucky, super lucky in that. Colonel's Bequest, the mystery, and this, this it's kind of Roberta Williams has mentioned in interviews that Colonel's Bequest was a bit of a modernization of game design for the time because there were a lot of games where you could just get stuck and you couldn't progress forward really. And the Colonel's Bequest was different because you could wander through the house and just just walk into these events, advance the cl the clock time, the game progression, and get an ending, even though it, it might not necessarily be the ideal ending or the happiest ending, you can get to it. Well, I mean, Sierra especially was known yes. to have adventure games where yes. if you if you miss a key or or a special action, you you yes. you land on a dead end. So yes. especially Sierra was known for that. <laughs> especially yes. So the fact that Colonel's Bequest didn't, I mean, there might be examples where you can ha that can happen. Um, the fact that they were trying to design it in a way that it wouldn't do that, I think, is mm. really great. And it's something I'm taking into mind in, in my game as well, where you should be able to kind of walk through the game. I have a notebook function in my game to make things a little bit easier too. So to keep so track of yeah. Yeah, what your objective is. So you just know, and you know, you, sometimes people go off and if they come back to a game after a few weeks and don't know what they're supposed to do, and that's a, you know, that can be a barrier for continuing on something. Um, you even have two separate kinds of inventories. 
yes. text and picture driven. I was like, oh my god, okay. Yes, yeah. Um, that was a suggestion. I think it was a suggestion because yeah, a lot of um the EGA games at the time they didn't have that graphical inventory system. But I love a graphical inventory system. I am an artist first, so that the idea of making the icons for everything was really appealing to me. Um, and I like having the option. So not only is there an option for doing a text-based list of the inventory items, um, as they had in those EGA games, but there's also the option for movement. You can use the mouse to click. You can use typical Sierra tap to move a movement option, or you can press and hold the arrow keys for movement as well. Um, I wanted to make it... I wanted to make the options because I wanted to to give people as much of an opportunity to explore the game and enjoy it. If they remember this type of game, they'll want maybe the Sierra Tap to Move. Maybe they're going to want the text inventory. But if they're new to the genre, and I would really love people who've never played this kind of old school looking text parser adventure game. If people are new, I want them to be able to move through the game in a way that they're more used to, which is yeah, holding the arrow keys to move around and things like that. Maybe a graphical inventory would be something that is be easier to understand for people as well. But I want to I want it to appeal to not just the retro people but new people too. It's interesting because in my mind there's there's all there's always like two companies that are really known for early adventure games and that would be Lucasfilm Games later Lucas Arts mm -hmm. and Sierra and um, I mean I did an interview with Ron Gilbert and he he was like the main difference be between Sierra games and Lucasfilm games is in our games you can't die and we <laughs> warn you like five times you you should you should reconsider your action because you might die so they really warn you like five times and Sierra mm -hmm. was like oh well, well, you have a you have a safe game, right? You can restore and try yes. again. Is yeah. uh, super super interesting. But but I think it's it's also a matter of fact here in Germany. I think Sierra first time I heard about it. Sierra it was King's Quest Seven or something. Oh wow! In the in the okay. early in the mm -hmm. early eighties, I really was only confronted by Lucasfilm games, probably because I didn't know know English and Lucasfilm actually had German translations. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if the early Sierra games had that localized versions. Ooh, I think that might have. I think they may have, but just not not as broadly available. And especially something like the text parser games, maybe not at all. Um, I would imagine. I I really, they did have a, a Japanese version of Police Quest Two, but so I mean I think I guess it did happen, but I don't know if that was even a text. That was that was a text parser game in North America, but I don't know if it was a text parser game in <laughs> Japan. I've seen screenshots of it, and it's incredible looking, but I don't know if I saw like a text input uh, input box or anything like that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not 100% sure, but I I mean pretty much I've heard that in Europe um, the LucasArts games were definitely more prevalent because they, they they took the time to do the localization. So I would guess that yes, Sierra just wasn't as 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 big on it at the time. That's that's probably true. Yeah, I, I mean at least for me. Um, now the thing is, um, I think I think you mentioned you mentioned the graphic artist of of um, the Connell Speakwest, yes. and I think in one interview you said you actually met him and showed yes. him your graphics, and he mistakenly thought yes. it's something he drew and forgot about it back back in the day, right? Yes, yeah, that was wonderful. So, um, <laughs> it's. It was amazing to meet him. I never thought in a million years I would ever meet him, for sure. Um, and I, and when, when people see my game and they think that it's the Colonel's Bequest, I think that's great. 
I, I know enough when I can look at my graphics and just to compare them one for one that it they do um, look they look similar at the style but the actual drawings it's not traced or anything like that it's not copy pasted or anything like that but um what, what I think is really interesting when you talk to someone like Doug Herring who's been like working in the industry for so long is that for him the games he worked on like the Colonel's Bequest uh and Quest for Glory 2 and Conquest of Camelot those games were like 30, 40 years ago for him, and he never thought about them much since then. But then, you know, you have people who love these games and continue to play them, people who speed run them, people who do Let's Plays of them. And they're still, for us, it's like an everyday thing to be exposed to them. And we have much stronger <laughs> memories about those games than the people who actually made them. And so for him to say that he looked at it and for a second thought it's something he had done is like the highest compliment I could possibly have received. Awesome. Awesome. So that means you are done. Once this game is out, you have reached everything in life you ever wanted. <laughs> at least, at least when it comes to art. Um. Uh, you know, the thing, I love the SCI Zero. I, I think it's my favorite engine, graphical style, but I do love AGI as well. Like the earlier Sierra games, so the King's Quest Three, Gold Rush, I love that look too. And I would, I would like to do as a challenge for myself, um, either just do some screenshot looking um, images for the, for something like that or a short game project. I mentioned, yeah, I love the CGA, like that, you know, the default CGA palette, I suppose we could say. There's two of them. Uh, I would love to do a little bit of that. Playdate was another thing where it was a black and white screen, so you got to work on black and white. Um, I, there were a lot of interesting challenges. Like, um, yeah, Space Warlord Oregon Trading Simulator was, yeah, just green and black, like the old Tandy work, which was really kind of nice to do. Um, I, I like that limited palette i like the low resolution so art wise um there, there's a lot i still want to explore um and uh, art wise i still i still look at Colonel's bequest and whenever i see someone play it i look at it and i want to go back and fiddle and update my own rooms i'm not going to do that i just fight the urge because i can see ways that it can be better um then, would, you, then it would never finish your game that's the thing. So I'm, I know not to go back and do this, but I already have ideas of se a sequel for my Nancy Maple game, you know, the Crimson Diamond. Um, but where it's, I, it's becoming an IP after all. I would like I would like to think so. I would like to do it that way. Um, the, my ultimate dream, of course, is to be able to make make the next game and focus 100% of my time on it. It kind of depends how the game, you know, sells. Of course, um, I, or I you make it crowdfunding, or you make it, or yeah, or make it crowdfunding, or I, you know, I find a publisher maybe for the second one, potentially. Um, that would be the absolute best scenario for me is just to be able to concentrate on only that. Um, I love doing also the contract work. I've learned so much on the contract work, um, so it's not necessarily going to be a horrible thing if I can't concentrate completely on the next game. But it just means I will be able to concentrate, you know half as half as much or something or less than that on the next so, one. So that game allowed you to to do that art and design even contract work full time. It's it's the thing you do for you for a living. Oh, um, right now. OK, so at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm kind of just working off savings. So the contract work helps augment those savings. But I, you know, I did work some somewhat in the 10 years after I graduated. And so I just there's huh. this this there's this freelance um, mentality that a lot of us have upon graduating where you just never know when your next contract is coming. And so you got to save all your money because you don't have you know, there's no pension and there's no um, <laughs> there's no um, promises, I guess, about where you're yeah. working next. So this idea is like I so I saved as much money as I possibly could. It's not much, but it's enough to support me. The contract work also is is, is helpful for that. So I don't have 
a full-time other job. I just have, you know, my part-time work contracts and then my part-time work for Crimson Diamond. But I did realize um, about some last year, I would say, maybe the, even the start of last year, I decided that I really want to finish this game. And in order to do that, I'm going to need to take on less contract work and just focus more, even if it means, yeah, like burning through my savings a little bit more than than otherwise. And even if it means that I won't get these opportunities to like work with other people and to network with other people, which has been really wonderful. Buzz, um, I'm glad you take the time for this interview. Well, that's the thing. I mean, this part this is part of it, right? I don't even consider this as time away from my game. I consider this as part of making the game. It's half of, it's at least half of the work of making the game is I want to give this as the best chance as possible. I want to, to, to succeed. I want to show it to as many people as might be interested in it. And, and I think there's people out there, you know, I've been trying to promote this game for years, but I'm sure there's still hundreds, if not thousands of people that haven't heard of it that might like it, in fact. And so this this is all part of that. And I thank you so much for the opportunity to do this with you and to share this. No problem. I mean, the thing is, we have our PR assistant and he was like, yeah, I know this person. I was like, okay, I don't, totally didn't. And he was like, and then he was sending me links to this article and this interview I was like, okay, half of the research was already done. So, okay. <laughs> so, so okay. you are definitely known in the, in, in the fear of, of retro gaming and stuff, just, just, just passed by my radar, but then I'm not really, I'm not, I wasn't really a PC gamer back in the eighties mm -hmm. mm -hmm. because I started with the Commodore 64. So that's probably <laughs> yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, really but here's the interesting thing. You mm. mentioned you are doing everything except the music. Yes. And I saw system requirements, Windows 98. Really? Yes, okay. okay, so the thing okay. with that is, um, so there were some people who did test it on Windows 98. Um, I think now it's been working on Windows XP. But I, I since have since then I've upgraded the game engine that I'm working in. So I'm using something called Adventure Game Studio, which is open source freeware. You can use it for commercial games. You can, you know, there are lots of games, adventure games that oh, have yes, used Adventure Game Studio, I like know. you know, Kathy yeah. Rain, Unavowed, um, uh -huh. Lamplight City, a bunch of games. Um, Rose Rosewater yes. coming up soon. Yes, exactly. Rosewater yeah. coming up soon. Hobbs Barrow, Excavation of Hobbs Barrow, also Adventure Game Studio. So lots of games. Um, and so I, I was not, when I started my game, it was of course, you know, 10 plus years ago. So they had an older version that I had been using since then. But then I realized I should probably upgrade the engine at some point. Um, maybe not at this point, I shouldn't have, but anyway, I did. And I think the system requirement now might be a bit higher than that now. Because well, you have of to update the, that. I do, I really do. Mm. So I have to find out about it. I got to ask my, my uh, Windows 98 and Windows XP havers if um, they can test it on their wow. machines. Yeah. Wow. Here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing. The first time I started up the game, I had this tiny window. Yes, and it that's said, the thing. Yeah, it said it said native resolution, uh, yes. <laughs> three twenty by yeah. two hundred mm -hmm. pixels. Yes. Yeah, uh, that that issue. So that's an issue. Hopefully, that it will be overcome since upgrading to the uh, the new engine. Uh, I think the game on start will will um, will display better. So a lot of people had that issue where you had the little tiny window because yeah, it's three twenty by two hundred. But um, yeah, I think the new version of AGS might. Uh, so that's something I'm going to have to ask testers yeah. when 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 I show the new demo. That yeah, interestingly, I'm normally used to be asked like stretch it to which resolution. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. but in your case, you have to do it like stretch it like two times, four yeah, times, yeah, yeah, five yeah. times, and then yeah. you have to figure out which is the best setting yes and if you if you do if you go too high then the then the window is outside of the yeah. visible area yes. and like whoa yes. that's like yeah. 
So that was like a bit of fiddling to get, well, exactly. to get it working. Yeah, yeah and, and I kind of want to minimize that amount of fiddling, of course, for people, because not everyone is going to be, you know, know how know how to do that or fiddle with those things, especially if it's filling the whole screen and you need to use keyboard shortcuts to be able to close it, that type of a thing. <laughs> that um, thing, mouse didn't work. I was like, yeah. okay. Yeah, so um, so that's yeah. So the the new engine hopefully um, will let you it, it lets you toggle the resolution in the game, so you can go full screen or windowed mode now. And I think the windowed mode knows to kind of give you the biggest possible window without being full screen. We so shall the see. chapter one release will be updated once the full game is out. Uh, yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping actually to to update the demo even before then, potentially. But we'll you see. You call it sure. demo, I call it chapter one. Because yes. It's the same thing. Chapter one is the demo, and demo is chapter yeah. one. Yeah. Well, it's it's clever. So you, you get two audiences being interested in your game. And Hopefully. the people don't realize that the demo is actually chapter one. It's actually the same thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I hope I hope people are not too annoyed by that. But um, it was just an experiment I, that I'm I was fine. doing. I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. I'm, Good. I'm... I'm I, I'm an IT guy with a degree. I'm no, I can do a bit of fiddling and a bit of um, mm -hmm. secretive work to find out how stuff works. It was interesting. It was a new experience because my first EGA game that I uh, intentionally installed and wanted to play. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah, so that's the thing I, I'm curious about. And again, not to turn the interview around on you, sure. is I'm very curious about how people approach this game when they've never, you know, really grew up with this type of a game. So tech well, parser, EGA, how does that make you feel? What was that was what was that experience like? Good question. Well, it's not 100% true because um of course on the Commodore 64 you have a lot of text adventures, but yes, since, since 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 my first real adventure was uh, Maniac Mansion, mm -hmm. I really only thought text adventures were nice, but I never really played through much mm -hmm. of them. So for me, each A was just a thing on the PC that I switched to because I wanted to know how to make the game uglier as a kid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you know, and I and I only I only had one game that was each and that was Duke Nukem, the mm -hmm. Shiver version. That oh, was yes. only available in, in EGA. And mm -hmm. I didn't even know that it was EGA. I just found that out later. And then, uh, I mean, I never really thought about it as a kid, why it has less colors and why it only has speaker sound and no ad lib, you know? Um, it's not something that really came to my mind. It's just something I figured out as an adult. I mean, here's the thing. As an adult uh, learning English and being fluent in it, I'm rediscovering a lot of games mm -hmm. like Turtles or Super Mario World on, on consoles. I'm like, wow, those games actually have a story, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as, sure. as a kid in Germany, I only knew, uh, you know, game over, continue, start. Yeah. Those those five words, so you are able to 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 start the game without help of my grandfather and stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh sure. Uh, so so for me for me this whole experience was like okay I have to type I can't really click but but then I have the inventory where I can click. So I'm <laughs> learning I'm relearning adventure games when I started up your game. Okay. Was and then was like okay you you can use you can use the keyboard keys to work to walk around your your um, uh, character right mm -hmm. but you can't use 
W-A-S-T? Yes, of course not. No? Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I, I completely understand that. That would be the first impulse of people that did not grow up with this, is to use those keys particularly. And of course, as a text parser adventure game, it's just simply not going to work that way. Yeah. Yeah, because if you if you if you press those keys, the game will think you want to enter some text. Yes. So yes, it can't course. work. It can't. It possibly yeah. can't work. Um, so I had to 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 rewire my brain a oh, bit. Sure. You know. Oh sure. But 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 you have this wonderful tutorial. I wanted to ask you about if you played the tutorial. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean. As a modern, as a modern triple A gamer and and also retro gamer, I know whenever there's a tour, tu tutorial, never skip that because it will haunt you back if you skip the tutorial. You know, <laughs> um, yeah, I totally played that. Uh, okay, probably f I forgot half of it already, but mm -hmm. never mind. Um, I think I think I spent an hour with it and stuff to prepare for this interview. Oh, wonderful. I found it very very atmospheric. Yeah, that's totally catching me. The thing is, the thing is with 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 Steam and such, I have like five click uh, point and click adventures that I'm playing simultaneously <laughs> and didn't didn't finish. So in my next holiday in in March, I'm actually planning to at least finish two games, so I can work off my backload of games because it disturbs me what are they um well the i i just finished thimbleweed park two weeks ago after seven years yes very good better late than never because because i was stuck with the game bug in the in the mansion in the mansion mansion somehow uh super weird and um then then i also i also started liking telltale games mm -hmm. so um i got a key for jurassic park and uh oh, wow. the uh, and the uh, back to the future game which is oh, supposed wow. to be the unreleased part four of of the movie oh my goodness that's why i was like okay you, the, you have to get it so um if something is there I'm a good I'm a good customer for it, you know. Um, I like I like collecting rare games and stuff. So if a game is delisted on on Steam and stuff, it makes it more interesting for me actually <laughs> to try to get a key or something, you know. Um, yeah. So basically, basically such things. And of course, I got the new Monkey Island, but I only spent like ten minutes with it because mm -hmm. I've. Uh, first one to finish the other games. Oh sure. Yeah. And and I and well, also looking forward to the new uh, Simon Sorcerer. Yes, indeed. As indeed. you know, the interview yes. I did. Yeah. And um, Simon Sorcerer 3D. I never finished that game because um, because when when the game when I bought the game, only half of the manual was printed, so I got a misprint. Oh my goodness. And I spent eight weeks tracking down. Um, um, the family um, of well, the creator of the game, because because when I bought it, it wasn't it was one of the last copies you get you could get as as an original. So oh, I wouldn't get a replacement. It was like return it and we and we return your money or keep it and hmm. be happy with it. So it it really took me a while to get a full manual, complete version of the oh, game yeah. and stuff. And I just just a month ago, I decided, okay, 
I'm stuck at this butterfly. Um, you have to you have to uh, catch some butterflies in mm -hmm. in the game. I know if I don't know if you if you know the game actually. I've, I Simon the Sorcerer. I feel like it was more more popular maybe in, the, in Europe than in North America. Well, it was from so, UK. It was yeah, from UK, so I never yeah. really played any Simon the Sorcerer. Ah, I have seen screen, yeah. you know, screenshots of it, and it's a really beautiful game. And I don't even know what it's, it's, it's not. Like, it's actually. not. Simon the Sorcerer is absolutely horrible and not okay. not a beautiful game. It's the yeah. worst, worst game of the series, and it sells, sold horrible because it was outdated five years after <sighs> it was released already and stuff. And and I decided to to get a safe game and finish mm -hmm. and now i'm trying to finish the game so i'm trying to catch up with my adventure games and so i'm trying not to buy new games but now there are so many new games coming out this yeah. year i'm like no so that's okay. my problem <laughs> thinking uh, speaking of ugly 3d games that's that's the thing that um yeah when i was a kid i would i was playing games you know all the way ega vga super vga but then there was a point where a lot of games started to become 3d and the earliest 3d games really did not look very good at all and I, that's where i kind of started to lose interest and so there was a time in my life uh, probably from mm. like between college and like just you know getting out of college there was this time right uh, you know to like late 90s to 2000s whatever that i was not really playing very many games because yeah i it was a combination of they didn't really look good i am much more a fan of 2d games anyway than 3d games overall but also um they didn't play very well and also my computer at the time you needed a really powerful computer to run them smoothly that type of a game and we never really had a powerful computer um we never had like the top of the line computer wow. in the house okay. Okay. so that kind that kind of mean meant that yeah there was a whole space in my life where i don't even think i was playing any like real actually computer games but then yes. yeah from from graduating you know 2007 2008 that's when you get start getting indie you get the youtube where you can see the indie games and everything people playing them and you know this this resurgence of the, t the type of game i'm interested in playing and then i guess the type of game that i'm interested in making um so I totally understand about the, the the Simon the Sorcerer, and I'm sure people were very disappointed at the time to receive a 3D um, for the next iteration of that series when it might have been so. I'm assuming so beloved um, in the earlier um, 2D versions. There's actually an exception. Uh, one adventure game that really was successful in 3D, and that was Crim Fernando. That was like the oh. only very successful 3D ga adventure game. Right, Grim Fandango. Uh, yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I remember it wrong. Uh, right, right. <laughs> that, yeah, well, you yes. are the expert. You are the expert <laughs> well, here. I, so. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but the thing about that game, and I did play that game at the time. Um, I didn't. The, totally passed it's me. It's really great. Like, the music is incredible. Um, the art is incredible. The thing about that game is that, yes, it's a 3D game. And, yes, it's, an, you know, it's not a new 3D game. It's a game when 3D, they're still figuring it out. But what makes the difference for me is that they were extremely smart about how they used the 3D, um, the application of the 3D, and it comes even something as simple as the faces, right? In Grim Fandango, your character is a skull, and you've got the face is 2D projected onto like this 3D object, so you don't have this weirdness of a kind of unappealing to look at animated 3D face. They didn't try to do that. And it's also not a realistic face where you're thinking, well, this is just like a mask of a face and it has no appeal to me. They went completely in the opposite direction where they really simplified what the face is. And in turn, it actually makes it more appealing and more relatable to have simple expressions on a face. So that was a very smart decision among a number of very smart decisions in that game. And that was one of the few yeah, 3D games that I think did really well with, with what they had. 
interesting because I never I never understood why it was so successful. Now you explain it to me. Thank you. <laughs> well, the, and, and it's not even just that. Like, the, it's not one. There's never one reason why. Um, there, it's because yeah, LucasArts was always known for extremely high production value. But, you know, they were doing a lot of the recording of music and invoices at Skywalker Ranch, right? Which is the complete premier, you know, studio type of uh, environment you're going to have when you want to do these types of things. So, you know, of course they had all that stuff from making, you know, um, Lucasfilm like movies, right? You got Indiana Jones and Star Wars and everything. So they were able to take advantage of those facilities to their fullest, um, which meant that I think, you know, you compare the voice acting and the music in, in Sierra games versus versus Lucasfilm, LucasArts games. It's just this idea where they're taking this almost like a movie approach to those to those things um, that I think, yeah, we're like a, a cut above what, what Sierra was putting out. In terms of that part of it, I mean, I still love Sierra games and there's still a lot about the art that I love. But from an audio standpoint, I think LucasArts games were far more advanced, which really did help them, their appeal, I think. And F Grim Fandango is a fantastic example of that. Curse of Monkey Island as well. Um, if you've never play i don't know if you've played curse of monkey island but it's gorgeous and the soundtrack is just it completely works alone it's just a soundtrack i listen to it all the time it's just absolutely fantastic music i i played the first three games and mm -hmm. actually now i'm on the fourth yes so trying to finish that because i got the anthology like a year ago and now i got all the other parts i didn't mm -hmm. have as an original now i do mm -hmm. um Oh, about the anthology. Did you know that I did art in the book? No, tell me about it. Okay, yeah, so that 30th um, anniversary anthology, Sierra Limited Run Games release, I did um, these EGA portraits of Ron Gilbert and and Tim Schafer and all of, like the the interview sections of those things. There's these, these little EGA portraits, and I got to do those ones. So you wow. you have that as well. So my musician, I didn't even get to talk about, but Dan Dan um, Policar, who's a musician, like he worked with Brenda and John Romero for an um, Empire of Sin. You know they did like. Um, all that, uh, oh my God, don't they quake? Wonderful they, people, wonderful, wonderful people. people. And he met them through like a big box Facebook group, right? So it's just like that whole thing where you meet these people in these in other interest groups, right? It's wonderful <laughs> to have that type of connection, you know? Would you define yourself as a nerd? Would you say oh, you are? Well, I think my interests at the time were the same as the people who call themselves nerds. I probably was a nerd. I would, I would record <laughs> computer music off the computer by putting my cassette recorder up to it and then listening to it to on my Walkman. I think that's pretty nerdy, right? I did the um, same, yeah. See, there you go. I mean, so that's everything. <laughs> so we have that in common. But, you know, because maybe I don't look like people expect or whatever, or, you know, ah. whatever, woman or whatever, they might think, well, you're not, you know, for whatever reason, it just doesn't make you like a real that thing because of whatever you can't control. So, yeah, I, would, I was pretty nerdy. I was pretty nerdy. Interesting, interesting. It's a super interesting. Thanks for, for being so personal with me. <laughs> totally didn't expect that. But it's nice if 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 the guest is getting along with me, even better, right? Um, anyway, my question I had in mind was, how did you actually go forward um, designing and laying out the story and the game? What is your What was your starting process with the game? It, it started with the this process started with the setting for sure because that was where the art that's where the art came in um, so I looked at the rooms that I had built and I thought I needed to think about people that would move in these rooms or why who built these rooms or you know where is this place so that's where that started I had started to have all these questions that I had to answer for myself about what I had built and you know in the further into the 
into the development even more so where I said, okay, I made this room in this house because there should be a bathroom on the ground floor, but is there a reason for this to be here? Is there another reason for this to be here besides the fact that I was looking at a clue or a clue dough board as you guys have in, in Europe? I, w- I have a conservatory, right? And I have a billiards room and I have a study because those are all rooms you find on, on the game board. And what is the reason for these to be here? So I kind of had to invent reasons why certain things had, had already been established, which which can be a little bit backwards from a lot of um, game design um, philosophy or other ways that people do things where you have a design first and then you build the setting around that. I, I did it completely backwards. I I was animating cupboards opening and closing and doing all this fine detail work on something that I really didn't have a clear idea of what the whole game would look like. Um, but I think starting with a setting is not necessarily a bad thing because adventure games in particular, they rely a lot on having a setting that feels good and feels real and feels like lived in. And having and having that time where I was kind of just playing around with the game, that exploratory area where I wasn't seriously focusing on finishing the game, that whole section of the 10 years of tinkering where I would just, you know, I want to make you wash your hands, right? You should be able to flush the toilet, even though that has nothing to do with the rest of the game. No spoil. Well, maybe that is a spoiler, but maybe I need to make a puzzle where you need to flush the toilet. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I was making all this stuff because I was just playing with it. It was just a toy for me to play with. But then as I'm making the game, developing the actual content that goes in this place, I already have like literally all the plumbing figured out, right? Everything, everything is, is working. Um, you know, you turn on the faucet, you walk out of the room, you come back into the room, it's still on, that type of a thing. All those things that, that really didn't have to do with, with the game, so to speak, and just with the world that you get to live in. This idea that in the demo, you can sit in most of the rooms. It's not a gameplay thing. Um, it's just something I wanted the player to do. And a lot of the games that you play, you can't sit in these rooms. And for me, if you want to be comfortable, you want to be cozy. Sitting is so important <laughs> to me. So that type of thing, where if I had been starting this game just to be the most efficient game possible with the least amount of work uh, and still making it be a good game, then it wouldn't have all that extra stuff that is charming about it and, and, and people can enjoy. Um, so setting, so setting first, characters next and then from the characters and i thought well there has to be some kind of like a conflict that happens and so the characters that i'm coming up with well what kind of a conflict could they possibly have and i started to draw in other things where what other things do i find interesting like what are my own hobbies and my own interests and one of my hobbies that i like is i like going to local museums and finding out about local history i love local museums because they're often so personal and it really grounds you in a place because you can you can go over to that street and see what they're actually talking about i, I love big museums too i love um, you know of course in toronto i'm fortunate we have the royal ontario museum which is wonderful but you know pull stuff from all, all over the world but it's so compelling to me to see these small museums that are curated by these very passionate people about their local history. So that was part of the reason, you know, what I thinking about Crimson, like where would this house be? I'd like it to be in a place with a lot of local history. And then I also am really interested in ge- uh, geology and mineralogy and things like that. And and so that focused, you know, that really played into it too, because I started doing a lot of research about um, ghost towns in Ontario, which is the province I'm, work- uh, I'm living in. And a lot of ghost towns started out as mining towns. And so I came up with this idea that, you know, Crimson, Ontario could be a mining town that kind of went bust and now is deserted, that type of thing. And then it creates, you know, these opportunities for for these ideas about what a conflict could be like in that setting. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. Um, and then, of course, from there, you think about, OK, well, what do I want the character, the problems that the character needs to you know, confront and what they need to overcome. And so what kind of puzzles can be in this game? Um, I, I didn't make, you know, there's no sliding tile puzzles. There's, there's no actual, like, puzzles that hopefully are going to 
are not going to make sense. I wanted everything to be kind of logical about this is what she'd reasonably be expected to do in in you know in pursuit of what her goals might be. Um, yeah, some some King Quest games and some <laughs> other games had some riddles where the people are like, "What? How am I supposed to to know that?" Yeah. yeah, I don't I don't like that type of approach. I, I I don't I wanted it to be kind of as straightforward as possible because I know that for me I'm from my perspective I might think it's straightforward, but you know if you're coming from this fresh, you might not see it as particularly straightforward. But as long as it does have a grounded logic to it, I'm hoping that people we will be able to work through it. But yeah, that is so, why many adventure games have two modes: casual and <laughs> classic adventure. Classic adventure. Yeah, I actually someone suggested that I should have an option where you can just disable the notebook. So at the start of the game, you couldn't have the, my, like the notebook that's in my game that tells you, that keeps track of your progress and gives you your objectives. Some people don't want that. So, oh, um, totally yeah, fine. I could totally understand that too, of course. Um, I don't know if I'm going to do it, but I, I think it's an interesting idea for sure because some people like how hard that is. And um, <laughs> But um, I also want it, yeah, to have appeal to people who want to just play it a bit, experience the story, and then, and then move on without really getting into a lot of the dialogue because it's a text parser so you can ask other characters questions um, and you can have these all these conversations with people but it's not necessary it's just good for extra detail of the story that might help you in the end to understand the whole thing that has just occurred over over the player experience but if you have to ask someone a certain question i don't want players to be playing a guessing game about what do i have to say to somebody in order to progress if there's an sure. actual question you explicitly will say in the notebook ask so and so about this right and then that that's what you'll know i figured that yeah well actually you could make a seal of quality like you thought zero games were hard mine's <laughs> mine is harder you know well mine well mine you know i'm hoping it'll be easier and and we we talked about um <laughs> lucas deaths versus sierra deaths uh, a little bit earlier on, and um, I actually, I actually kind of follow the LucasArts uh, philosophy more in that respect. Where, yeah, there are a few deaths in my game so far, but uh, you kind of have to work for them, and you get ample warning ahead of time. Um, although, as I do get, uh, you know, as I get older, the the Sierra approach is there's a lot of fun there. But as a kid, it was very scary and didn't uh, didn't encourage me to explore so much because I felt like I was being punished for exploring. Like I get eaten by a crocodile or I, you know, fall into a river or something, um, which which is another issue that I had with Colonel's Bequest overall in terms of game design is you could randomly run into these encounters and accidentally progress the game when you're not ready to pr progress the game. And I actually prefer adventure games where you have more control over exploration and you're not going to accidentally progress the game until you're ready. And so one of the things that the, the notebook that it does that I try, try with it is uh, to progress the game, it explicitly says, do this to progress the game. And anything else you do during that time in the game, it won't, won't, you don't have to worry. You can just try anything and you're not going to have to, you're not going to accidentally um, skip something that you might have wanted to see. So you don't have acts that automatically um, no. continue based on, on, on time and stuff? No, 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 it's nothing like that. Um, so the game will, you know, there are different stages of the game, in, you know, different times of the night, but it, the game won't do that accidentally. Like, you're not going to do that by accident, by asking some question or stepping into a room that at a certain time. It's, it's not going to progress the game that way. Awesome. Awesome. Wonderful. So let's talk a bit about the music. Uh, you said yes. that's the only thing you don't do yourself. Yes, yes. Everything else but the music. Uh, and honestly, I'm super 
jealous about developers like Lucas Pope who do the music as well because it's just the one-stop shop they do everything and, and there's so much talent there but on the other hand um, I was speaking once with Francisco Francisco Gonzalez of course who's currently working on Rosewater and he said it's actually really nice to have one aspect of the game that's not completely up to you so that it keeps it kind of fresh and interesting and have someone else's perspective in that way and I think he's right about that because having Dan on the project has been super rewarding and inspiring in a fun way and also having someone kind of share that experience of developing the music so sometimes on these streams I do these art streams but sometimes if Dan is available we do a music stream and he'll come on and we'll compose a track for the game like live on stream and we'll take we'll take kind of like chat you know chat like comments and like they'll have make suggestions and we'll try some stuff out and we'll you know and and actually um one of the fun things about this is so dan dan is i can i call dan the coolest nerd that i know because he's both cooler than i am and he's nerdier than i am so <laughs> is that this, even possible yes that's the thing it's not fair it's not fair because you know he has all these incredible this incredible big box collection he has like the hugo's house of horrors like the actual games when you would register you he has the physical ones so he's, he has this wonderful collection of of games and um he collects like he has some old transformers as well because he's a musician so he likes the ones that turn into cassette tapes and all that he could tell you all about that so not so he has all that i don't have all that stuff and he knows all about amiga stuff he knows about pc stuff he has old you know he's got an, i think he's got an amiga and he's got old pcs as well um, i don't have any of that stuff um, so he's definitely nerdier, but he's also like cooler than me too because he is a touring musician. So he he plays oh. with um, with Sean Paul. He's been in Sean Paul's band for the past ten years, and they go all over the world. So he was just in Qatar for the World Cup, um, performing at some ven like a fan venue or something. Well, it's like twenty five, thirty thousand people, and you know he gets flown in, and you know they he gets in a you know set up in a nice hotel room and everything, all this stuff. So so. <laughs> So Dan gets to be the super cool touring musician guy who tours all over the world. He also gets to be super nerdy guy with like this super envious collection. And then he also is like this amazing musician, which I get to really take advantage of, of course, because he comes onto these streams occasionally when he has time. And, and what makes Dan even nerdier in, in a very, very valuable way to me is that Dan has a Roland MT32, like a real Roland MT32 wow. synth okay. that he composes on. So he would compose on this synth live on our Twitch streams. Um, so, this, so these happen at 8 p.m. Eastern. Um, so whatever conversion, I think it's not a good time for you guys in 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 UK, but um, yeah, 8 p.m. Eastern. But close. Sorry, sorry, Germany, of course. Yeah, Germany. It's like what you're you're six hours ahead, I think. Probably, yeah, depending yeah, on the time yeah, zone. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. So sorry about that. Yeah. So six hours ahead. So it's not really that good for you guys in terms of time. Um, we do put put the I do put the 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 videos on YouTube as well. But I yeah, know. I saw them. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. He so he live composes with this Roland MT32. He set up this whole thing. You know, he had to do all these bypasses and all this these tricky things to make this thing work. So he he's got this thing working. We we use that. The music that's in the game was composed on on a genuine Roland MT32. Um, but but yeah, fantastic. But you are you are converting it to AdLib, no? Is it really we're, Roland we're, sound? Um, it's well, it's Roland sound, but yeah, we are converting the files to OGG files, which is the like the f open source um, music format. They can be MIDI though. Um, I think that Dan has to jump through a few more hoops to make it MIDI music. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's. Um, oh, we were even thinking about doing PC speaker, but I don't think we're going to go that far with it. Oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> that would be totally amazing. I think Dan would tear all his hair out if we made him do that. But um, oh, it, that's. I mean, DOSBox DOSBox supports it. I oh guess God. there is a way to make it working. 
I wonder if we, oh my gosh, I'm going to ask Dan about that actually. If we can have a stream where we just take the tracks and just make them a PC speaker track. Mm -hmm. But yeah, um, so yeah, you're not going to need a Roland MP32 or anything to play the game or anything. It's just going to be just standard OGG files put through Adventure Game Studio. But it's going to have the same limits. It's going to be the same limitations that the Roland MP32 has to work I with. I guess the same for the graphics. It would work on E3A graphics card, right? Yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, Lazy Game Reviews, he actually, um, I had an EGA version of like this piece I did, the Sierra fan art piece of Halloween. So it was kind of scary Sierra villains. So there was Lalot from King's Quest IV. There was Adavis from Quest for Glory 2, Baba Yaga from Quest for Glory 1 and Man Mananen from King's Quest 3. So it was all the all EGA characters. And he loaded it up on one of his old PCs, which was kind of nice, super fun. And it worked, it displayed correctly. It did work. It, it was actually like half resolution, I think. But yeah, it, it, it worked like the color, everything displayed um, really wonderfully. Um, so yeah, it's a game that looks, has the same EGA look as the old games, has the same EGA, like well, the sound associated with the EGA games as well. Um, but- So you're not, you're not faking it. It's really EGA with all it's, the limitations. Yes, it's really EGA. So there's there's no there's no like um like transparencies or anything. And the music, of course, yeah, will be playable by anybody. But it was made with those same limitations as I am experiencing with awesome. making the EGA. Awesome. Art. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, PC speaker. <laughs> Why not? I mean, I mean, there are some really classic examples. I mean, Zach McCracken has an awesome PC speaker theme, oh if you yes. ever listen to that. Oh, definitely. Super amazing. Yeah. I actually did an interview with um, Rob Hubbard once where he talked about the process of going from Roland to Adlib, Sound Blaster, Speaker. Oh, my goodness. All those so the the Roland was the top, and then yeah. you, he he would convert it down to the next lower sound oh possibility and yeah. sound format, and then he would end up in the PC speaker, and that was um, the um, the soundtrack of Ski or Die. Somebody on YouTube called it face melting. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I, I have I do have an affection for the PC speaker. I'm not gonna lie. Um, it can get it can get um, pretty annoying pretty quickly, but I there is an affection there just because of that. That is the first sound I heard coming out of a computer, for sure. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was the Commodore sixty four with Space Taxi, Pad oh. One, please. Oh, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the more options you have for the game, I would definitely switch to PC speaker and see <laughs> how it sounds like, you know? Yeah, uh, speaking of, of that and speaking of just having an older PC experience, yeah, a lot of um, a lot of the game should be just playable with uh, a keyboard only, even with the menus and things. So saving and loading and being able to scroll through those the save game list, you can do those all with the arrow keys. You can load by pressing the enter key. So um, there are some options in the main menu where you might have to use the mouse, but for the most part, and this actually helps me with testing as well, most of it you don't have to touch the mouse at all. Um, if you if you are so inclined, and I am actually that way as well. You don't have testers to do test it all yourself. Um, no, I I do have testers, um, but I don't. I only really give it to them at certain stages. So I don't have you know. It's not like daily or anything like that. What I do is I they'll there'll be a certain version that I'll come up with, and I'm actually in the in the midst of testing 
um, the first five chapters. Now that I've you know upgraded the engine, I'm testing the first five chapters on my own. Once that testing stage is complete, I will be sending it out to my testers so that they all have the awesome. same version that they can be working from. And then I'll, as as they're kind of working through that and giving me feedback on that, I'll be starting on the last gameplay chapter, which will be chapter six. And then chapter seven is kind of like the branching ending debrief test of knowledge chapter where you have where the game will quiz you on how you know how well you've understood what's going on and maybe subplots and things like that. Oh, so you have yeah. you have um, so the questionnaire is to understand how to make another game better or. Uh, it, it's a more like uh, how well did you understand the game and based on how well you do on that little quiz. It'll give you like you know a good ending, kind of an okay ending, or a not so good ending. So the game does not really branch. The game only branches at the very end of of the game, where mm. it kind of gives you like the different different paths that you would have go down if you know if you, however much you you learn from the game, because there the notebook I mentioned it tells you the very basic things to do to progress through the game, but there are all a bunch of other conversations that are in the game that you can miss if you don't, you know, explore a lot or ask, you know, or find find these things out. And those conversations can give you more insight into characters' motivations and, you know, other stuff that's going on. Um, so if you just go by the, the the notebook and just follow everything along, you'll come up, you'll 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 fill that quiz quiz out a certain way, but you might miss a lot of the stuff that that is also in the game. So there is sort of an element of potential replayability, but it's not because of branching, because I don't really have the resources to do like branching from the very beginning and just completely do two different streams of a game where maybe only people will experience one. I want people to experience as much of the same content as possible until the end, and then the end is where you you know, you mm. just get that epilogue, where you might have like some text boxes and some static graphics that'll tell you, you know, what happened because I mean, of the decisions you, you've made. Also, you want to be finished with your game at some point and not yes. another 15 years or whatever. Yes. Oh my gosh. When you put it that way, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's it's not even just a matter of, of working on it forever. It's also a matter, yeah, I, 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 I'm excited to share it with people because so far the only part that's publicly available is chapter one, the demo. But there are, you know, this I've, you know, there's four other chapters that I've completed that no one's seen anything of, and I'm I'm very careful about not sharing story details on stream or anything like that. Don't you don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not. I, I I haven't up to this point. I'm not about to start now. But if you come to my streams, I don't spoil anything. The art streams that I mentioned, I'm working on the introductory sequence art. So if you download from Steam the Crimson Diamond demo, you will see the introductory sequence. That, uh, uh, Jorg, Jorg, Jorg. Jorg, Jorg. Okay, I'm so sorry, Jorg. No problem. I'm so sorry. I was like trying to think in my head how to pronounce that properly. But yes, Jorg. Um, experience this long introductory sequence. It's all the graphics for some of it is very crude still because they're just placeholder graphics. On Did the art, that honestly. Oh, interesting. On the stream though, I am I am upgrading those graphics to look make them look consistent with the final game. Oh, okay. Uh, so the the art streams will not spoil any aspect. I'm not working on chapter six graphics, for instance. Even in, better during graphics. the streams. In the intro. Yeah, even better graphics in the intro. And for the music streams, I might give Dan some cues of like what I want. Like I want, I want this to be a sad piece that you know whatever. And I'll give details, but I won't give any story details. I give Dan sometimes some story details outside of stream, but we mm -hmm. don't discuss those details. So you might hear, you know, he he was composing a piece that actually shows up in chapter four, but no one knows the context of that music. Um, so I'm super careful about sharing those those story details. 
Interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, I was not about to ask you to sp <laughs> spill the beans. <laughs> well, I already said that you don't need. I already said you don't need to flush the toilet to finish the game. So that's already a bit of a spoiler. That's as far as I go. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's interesting that you say you are reworking the graphics on the intro because for me, chapter one, including the intro, looks finished. But oh yeah, just 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 a cutscene, right? The cutscene when you select new game and it opens with the fisherman in the river that that whole sequence mm. is the part I'm, I'm referring to because some of that i just kind of put together just to get the sequence of events correct and you know when nancy's taking the train up to the up to crimson diamond uh, Crim crimson ontario that whole part that that whole part i saw that has some placeholder stuff but the actual demo um when you start the game proper and you start in the beginning bedroom area that stuff's all finished like that's all completely polished out mm. Except how, except when I see Colonel's bequest and then I want to make my graphics better. How did you actually get up with the name of the character? I mean, <laughs> uh, Nancy Mapple, that sounds a bit like this um, this joke they did at The Simpsons where they called Apple Mapple. Apple Mapple? Oh my gosh. Okay, so the, the name... A lot uh, with a lot of this stuff in terms of names, I named things in a way that I didn't think I'd stick with. Um, so Nancy Maple was just a name I kind of came up with because I was just making my project and I wanted to call the character something. And Nancy Maple is a combination of Nancy Drew, who's another famous red-headed uh, uh, girl detective, and Miss Marple, who is, a, of course, a famous Agatha Christie detective. Plus Marple, I've paid, I made it to Maple because she's Canadian. That's all, that's all, as much thought as was given into that. I'm just, I've just been running with it. <laughs> Um, yeah, in fact, there are other characters. So there's a character called Nessa Crab. And Nessa Crab is named because I used to watch a lot of a YouTuber called Her Crabbiness. And that's where I learned a lot of about adventure games that were being made nowadays. She did Let's Plays of all of Francisco's Ben Jordan series of games. And that's where I learned about Adventure Game Studio. And I learned about Francisco and his work. So that is very significant to me. So I asked Her Crabbiness if I could name a character after her. So I named Nessa Crab after this particular YouTuber. I mean, she's not, you know, like, uh, you know, millions of subscriber YouTubers. Just someone who's meaningful to me. And that that's why she's named that. That. Um, a lot of characters are liked in, in, in the game, actually, um, with the, with not much thought about. It. I'm actually going to release something publicly that's going to have these like little little fun fun Easter egg parts. So it's names of people you know from different places. Yeah, not even people that I know personally. It's just people that. I find significant in terms of, for me, the inspiration to do an adventure game or text parser, particularly adventure game where someone, yeah, who like they put something out that inspired me to, to make what, what I'm doing. Um, another one that's in there is Corvus Shaw is a character in the game. And that character is named after Yahtzee Croshaw. And I don't know Yahtzee Croshaw personally or anything, but he, he made an AGS adventure game studio series called the Chizo Mythos. Um, he made like four or five, six games that were point-and-click adventure games. And he was another example of someone that, oh my gosh, so this guy, he just made this all by himself. And these are great games and it's possible to do this. And that's very meaningful to me. And that's why I called the character that. I didn't even really ask him. So I hope whoever's listening, um, if he has a problem with this, I will, of course, change the name. I have no problem with doing that. But it's just something that, again, personally meaningful to me because of that inspiration. Do you really want to change names in the game after it's released? That reminds oh. me of Duke Nukem, which <laughs> was um, which was actually f first called Duke Nukem, but hmm. uh, many people don't know that. So, oh. 
<laughs> oh, really? Why, why was he called that? Um, I, um, I, I don't know the story, but I think I think I read somewhere that they had them um, like a trademark infringement problem. Oh, so dear. they had to change the character. So the first version of the game actually has a different name than oh. than the uh, following versions of of the game. Uh, well, I would prefer if I needed to change the name if that happened pre-release, but it, if it had to happen post-release, I'm also totally fine with it. Um, it's just like a find and replace type of experience. And it's it's not his exact name. It's just like Corvus means crow, crow shaw, Corvus shaw. I made the name, so it's it's not like I don't think it would be a big deal. But of course, if he has a problem with it, I'm more than happy to change it. Absolutely. It's interesting that you worry about such things. Well, of course, I can understand maybe you know like why people would would want or not want to have certain things be that way. Um, there's actually that kind of ties into a story about the original music I was using for the game as placeholder music and so these names were kind of considered for me placeholder names until i could come up with other names but i'm just going with them until someone says that you can't um but i had uh, this whole set of like six hours worth of canadian folk tunes in midi format called the great canadian tune book and i was originally just going to use that music for my game because i thought great this is perfect it's canadian folk tunes my game is set in canada um like in like kind of kind of a folk tune type of very appropriate sound would be a very appropriate sound for it i'll just use this stuff uh, but I saw that there was a credit to who made this stuff, which is a man called Barry Taylor. And I think he set out in British Columbia, or last last anyone checked, um, maybe even um, Victoria, British Columbia or something. And I tried tracking this guy down to ask him, can I use your music for my game? And I cannot find this guy anywhere. <sighs> uh, so, so I thought, well, it's, it's too bad, but also it's good in a way because that led me to like actually seek out other musicians. And of course, Dan was one of these musicians that I sought out. Or, you know, I think he might have even approached me about this. And I thought, I actually do need music because I can't find this other guy. In the very, very remote possibility that he should find my game and say, you can't use my music. Ah, okay. You know, that, and, and that's harder to replace than na a name in the game, you know. So <laughs> that's why I started looking at musicians and saying, oh, and Dan said, you know, he'd be oh, totally open to making, you know, the, the music for the game. And I said, this is fantastic. You know, and then until and then after that, I learned, yeah, he actually went out and got himself off of eBay a Roland MT32 for this project, which I didn't ask him to do. Oh my god! Oh my god! I know. Really? Whoa! Yeah, I'm so lucky. Whoa. I like it's it's not only that. Like I would Whoa. never ask someone to buy a Roland MT32 wow. and figure out how to hook it up to your modern computer to make wow. this thing work. He figured this out all on his own. So yeah, like, in one way, not being able to use the Great Canadian Tune Book is 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 kind of like sad. And I do love a lot of those 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 MIDI um, files. Yeah. yeah, but this it opened up this whole other possibility. And also, I still use the Great Canadian Tune Book on my streams. I have it playing in the background softly. Um, the six hours, it's the same music over and over again. But it's six hours, so it's quite a lot. And I have it on shuffle, so it's not a big deal. So I still get to enjoy the music. But for my game, um, I've got, I got connected with Dan. So that was wonderful. Well, with the names, how I see it, I would be totally honored to have my name in, in your in well, your thank game. You. I appreciate yeah. it. I understand that not everyone is the same, of course, too. So. Uh, totally fine <laughs> you know um i would be totally honored you know i mean actually 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 there there are some youtube videos from friends of mine where they found my character in in, in the game but but such things are always paid because oh. you have to pay extra to oh. to 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 have your name mentioned and your character photo or your voice or whatever. So oh, I see. yeah, oh, so you, you can you can find me in the phone book of Simple Beat Park. Oh yeah, and of actually course. call me. 
Yes. So speaking of Thimbleweed Park, I did kickstart um, in Thimbleweed Park. And speaking of all that piracy that my dad engaged in, in terms of like game piracy um, when he was working in the office, I did pick the tier that absolved you of all your game piracy sins. I don't remember if you remember what the Kickstarter tiers were like, but there was, I think, like a for $5 extra, there was like a tier where you got the game, and then there's a $5 extra tier to where Ron Gilbert absolved you of your piracy sins. I remember sins. that, okay. Don't so I did that. I did select that tier. So I consider myself, even though they're not personally my sins because it was my, my dad doing all this stuff, I, I benefited <laughs> from them. So I felt, I felt good about um, spending that extra $5 for wow. Ron Gilbert to forgive me, so... Well, I was one of those crazy guys. I have like three copies of Stack McCracken. Four copies. Three are German and one is English. Really hard to find as the German ones were better sold than the English ones. <laughs> yeah, in, Amer in America, in America, Sierra was more common yes. than, than Lucasfilm. So there are more German copies floating around of the Commodore 64 version and Maniac Mansion to get Maniac Mansion on the Commodore 64 was real hard work. Oh my oh. God. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so I can say I own the originals. <laughs> That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. And I also got one. I also got this rare CD version speaky speak. How, how do you call it? They call it speaker version. No speaky version, speech version. Um, okay. Of Loom, of Loom. Ooh, that's also pretty rare. Um, With Commodore sixty four? No, that was PC. Okay, PC. The, okay, right, right. The Loom. There was a okay. yes, yeah, Talkie, Talkie version. Talkie, okay, Talkie, 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 Talkie version. version. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, I, I just, I, uh, as you mentioned, limited run games. Yes. I just found, I just found out yesterday that they now make a rerun of this limit of this very rare talky version of loom on dvd they are including the ega version in that limited run games release yeah of loom. i saw that yeah yeah and i was thinking like should i really should i really get it because i have this rare talky version mm. on cd already i got it like i got it like 13 years ago and I got it like for 80, 80 euros. And I looked it up last year. It was like 600. I was like, oh my God, good that I got it 13, 13 years ago. Now it's now it's un unaffordable. It's incredible how how much those games are costing nowadays. I, I will say that out of any of the limited run editions, the Loom one has got me the most tempted. Really? Because... The thing about LucasArts games is they have a lot of those games commercially available, but they do not have the EGA version commercially available. That includes, you know, uh, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. They have mm. a VGA version available, but they don't have the EGA version available. Um, that is also, I believe, Zach McCracken. Potentially, they, they don't have the EGA version available. Um, possibly even Maniac Mansion. I'm not 100% sure on that one. But Loom especially is really hard to find legitimately in EGA version. And I don't know, did I already mention this? It's been a while today and I have a bad memory. But did we well, talk well. about how um, on my art streams I also do um, Let's Plays of Adventure yes. Games? Old, 
old, one okay. of the first things you mentioned. Okay, yes, you, right. That you look, look, and you're interested to see how they solve this issue. Yes, yes, exactly. So I try every in every adventure game that I play. I so far I've only played EGA adventure games. Even something like Cruise for a Corpse, which I recently finished, they had, you know, they had Amiga version, they had a VGA version, I think. But I played, I played the EGA version, which is also very hard to find. Um, and I've played, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade in EGA, very hard to find. But I, to kind of absolve myself of finding that elsewhere, I did buy the GOG version of Last Crusade in VGA. So I feel like it's within my rights to access the EGA version of that game to play it because it's not easily available otherwise like i couldn't buy it if i wanted to mm. so i did buy the other version uh with loom loom is another one where yeah you can't get you can't buy loom ega version but that's the one i'm most interested in because yeah it's the it's the color so you palette. will pre-order it i don't know <laughs> i'm having a tough time with it i actually i was not planning on playing loom on on my my stream really um i've been trying to play games from studios that i didn't really play back when i was growing up uh, so I've played my one LucasArts game I've played on my stream was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But um, I've been playing games by other studios like, um, yeah, Cruise for a Corpse was by Delphine Software International, which I'd never played a Delphine game before. Um, I also played um, Personal Nightmare, which was by Horrorsoft. And that mm. was a Brit that's a British studio. And I, what I like is not even not even just the graphics, but I also wasn't like horror. Wasn't Horrorsoft from the same guys from Adventuresoft? Yes, yeah. So it was Adventure Soft, but they call them the Horror Soft for like they're all Vara games and for Personal Nightmare. Exactly. Well. exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so I love to explore these games from these other studios, especially if they're EGA, because I like seeing like how they handle an adventure game. Because these games, you know, certain studios have games that have a certain kind of UI or a certain way of dealing with, you know, problem solving or dialogue or anything. And I love seeing these old games and, and seeing how they approach all these problems and how things maybe are not as smooth and are a little bit too difficult for people, like limited limited inventory and personal nightmare, stuff like that. I, I love playing old games because for, for that education and for to remind myself of when I design my game, what I should be mindful of as well. I, I actually started a let's play of a game called Mortville Manor, which is Never also that. it's it's by Lancor Games, L-A-N-K-H-O-R from 1987. And it was French originally, they translated it. And it's a mystery game set in a house, so that's my favorite thing of all. And you can only ask like six questions per character, even though there's a whole list of questions you can ask. But after that, they won't answer any more questions. Ooh. So that's an example of a design decision that I'm not a particular fan of, but oh. what I like to experience it and and see. Okay, well, they you know this they you know games at a certain point in time they had these these ideas about what what would be fun or challenging or a fun challenge. To, to play and so I love I love learning all that stuff so I was not necessarily going to play Loom on stream uh, I would love to just be able to buy just the digital version of the EGA version mm. without all the added extra so so if I decide to get it should I send you the files <laughs> I would buy just the EGA I don't even know I think probably the USB just has everything on it most likely. Most it's likely. the same with the uh, anthology for the uh, Monkey Island. Yeah, I, I'd imagine so. Oh, boy. Now, now you make me tempted because I was totally planning not to get it. <laughs> I <laughs> because, just... because I was like, uh, you already have this hundreds yeah. of dollars worth of special yeah. edition. 
that you bought t t uh, 13 years ago. You don't need you need you don't need the talkie version on DVD. Mm -hmm, exactly. So I could just buy the I might just buy the VGA version of Loom and just at, like find available somewhere floating in the internet ether the EGA version because you know that, that's, that's a good I'm question. Is it actually available? Can you get it on on abandoned way or somewhere? Oh, I'm sure you can find the Loom EGA. That's not that wouldn't be I think particularly difficult to find. Um, so yeah, I might just go ahead. If if there's no other avenue to buy just the digital version of the EGA Loom, I would just buy the VGA Loom. Okay, I just found it. See, it's not that. Yeah, that because it's such a very it's a popular game. Um, for less popular games, it's a lot more challenging. Like the EGA version of Rise of the Dragon by uh, by Dynamics, that's a hard one to find. Uh, as well as um, the EGA version of um, Cruise for a Corpse was also tricky. Like those are not commercially available. I just so happen to have some wonderful viewers of my stream that were able to furnish me with these things. Also, it's surprisingly the EGA version of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was was very hard to find. It, there are versions online, but they're not. They don't work properly. Um, at a certain point, they stop working properly. Um, but oh. I'm fortunate enough that people have been able to supply me with those with the working versions of those. Because I do like sharing the experience of playing the EGA version on stream so other people can see them because it's not something that you can easily access. But I do want well, to remind you could, people... You could, you could with DOSBox, actually. Well, no, I mean, yeah, with DOSBox, I have DOSBox, but um, the one, the most easily available EGA Last Crusade is it, like, um, if you look at the Grail book at a certain point, it doesn't work. Is it so, like a copy protection that's active no, for something? No, no, it's not the copy. There is a copy protection that you do have a PDF manual to use, and that's totally fine. Ah. But it's just a matter of like this stops working. Like you need to be able to open the Grail diary when you're in the church. So, so it's a bug in the game at some point. Yes, or... it's a bug in the game. So there's a, a version that's floating out there that you look, you try to open the Gra Grail diary in the church, and it doesn't work. And you need it to work to 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 play. That it. means that means people. Who bought the game couldn't finish the game even. No, no, no. The legitimate versions, like people have bought, like I have been given a version of the Indiana Jones Last Crusade that works fine. So somewhere along the line, there is a broken version that is floating in the internet. But people who had it at the time, they they there's works. So, uh, so it's like it's like the crackers just got like an early broken version yeah. or broke it along the process. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So that one was, that was a particularly tricky one to get the EGA, but I like, I, I've said this before. I keep repeating myself, but I do want to repeat myself. I did buy the last crusade on GOG. The VGA Don't worry. I, I heard it before. <laughs> yeah. I, because I don't, I don't necessarily support piracy. If you can buy the thing. I do. I do the same. I do the but, same. But if you if you buy the thing and you it doesn't include the version that you actually want, then I will get it elsewhere. <laughs> I mean I mean I bought I bought the collector edition of Defender of the Crown and the and the PC version file is broken. Oh no. See, so there you go. Yeah, exactly. You have to go to Abundant Bear yeah. <laughs> and download it. Whatever. I paid for it. It's broken, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, so that's how the same way I feel about the EGA version of some of this stuff. If it's just not being legitimately provided, and I'll, I'll buy the other version. But uh, that's yeah. actually my gripe about the um, about the anthology um, mm -hmm. of Mo Monkey Island. Mm -hmm. That's something that I wrote to Limited Run Games. Mm -hmm. But what I think was was really awful. The the book art book and all this packaging and all that super wonderful, mm -hmm. but the contents of the 
DVDs mm-hmm. and CDs and the USB stick or USB flash drive, you would say mm-hmm. in English, is mm-hmm. really half-hearted. Okay. I mean, I mean, I mean, they put versions on Monkey Island on there that only work in one resolution. Okay. If you disable all secondary monitors, and okay. even then it barely works. Oh wow. And and I'm like couldn't you use scum vm and make a better <laughs> release and they honestly told me no we, we just published what the publisher told us which is the same program stuff you got on gog i'm like nice but there's scum oh, vm yeah. and there are there yeah. is a possibility if you have the raw files you could mm-hmm. up, you could upload them to scum vm and have a better version of the game mm-hmm. that doesn't crash or yeah. doesn't all only play on 640 by 480 mm-hmm. um so that's like that's like not many thoughts went into the software side of the anthology does it have the eg version of secret of monkey island i don't remember okay and here's the thing the um the dvds and cds were so badly manufactured that I can't. I I tried three drives, and none of those drives could oh, read no. this oh, So I had weird. to use the flash, the USB flash mm-hmm. drive. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm. would it would take ten minutes to even to even start the setup routine because these are so badly manufactured. Oh, this it, is just a shame. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. You know, it's like. They went all through that to get the original files and the disk images and in a bin format that you can use and stuff. But then there are little things like not working CDs, DVDs, or, well, missing good versions of the game that yeah. run modern yeah. modern systems, you know? Oh, Scum VM and DOSBox are wonderful, 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 amazing things that we yes. have. It's, I mean, I mean even, even the versions on GOG are horrible. For mm. some of those Monkey Island games, oh dear, it's just like a shame. But uh, publishers decided we release it like this, and this this is how it's how it's done, you know. And then then you think like, oh no problem, I can just use the original files and put it into Scum VM myself, mm-hmm. right? That's what I thought, but. The files on the USB flash drive and on the CD and DVDs are compressed, self-extracting XXE files. Okay, okay. That you can't extract. Uh, so you can't. You can't get the source files. Oh boy. Of 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 the Windows versions of right, the right, newer right, games. Right. Yeah, yeah. So there's no way of fixing it. You know. Uh. It's uh, so so. I'm stuck with <laughs> with the lowest resolution modern Windows can handle, and I have to disable all the other monitors so the game runs. Oh my gosh! Super weird. And then you would say, okay, no problem. There is a config tool you can run and change the resolution, right? No, it's broken. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame. I just the, the, these hobbyist communities are so on top of all these things. It's it's. I, I, I do tend to go with um, using DOSBox first and then SCUM as my second. It's just, they work. And they've got people that are maintaining them and advancing yeah. them. And it's kind of wonderful that, to see that care and attention that we were talking about before. Yeah. I mean, why didn't they put 
ISO files of the <laughs> of the of the disk images on the USB flash drive. You know, then people can decide what to do with them. Mm-hmm. Use DOSBox, use ScumVM, whatever. No, they had to go the extra length and mm-hmm. make a compressed, mm-hmm. self-extracting exe file that that runs an installer, and then then. Then of course what you get is not the raw files that would work with Scum VM because yeah. it's something they made up. Uh, yeah. Super super weird. And that's probably why why I never finished all the Monkey Island games because oh, it's such a pain to yeah. play through them, you know. And of course it's not it's um, it's not it's not widescreen. It's four by three, right, so it's course, all yeah. they all have squ- squashy faces. And <laughs> super super weird. Anyway, oh, yeah. just my experience with the anthology. Mm. Well, they offered me to ship it back and get my money returned without the restocking fee, but I was like, no, I want the games, even if even if they're not in the even if they're not in the uh, shape and form I would like to have them. Mm-hmm. Just my gripe about. Well, that. and now you know, now that you have them, though, you can also just get the ones that you want from the internet. Yeah, but. Do I really want to go through the piracy route? I don't know. I will just, I will just, I mean, it's an adventure game. I will play it once and never again. So just stick with it and Mm. only concentrate on the game and disable everything else. And then it works in a horrible resolution, but it works. Well, I think, you know, I think it's totally fine for the piracy angle because you bought everything. So you could just get the version you want. On out of right, that's how it's you totally, see it. I think it's totally legitimate because yeah, you spent that, you gave them their money, and it was else cheap. You... It was cheap. So there you go. I, I think it's. I, I mean, I can't. I'm not going to be the arb- moral arbiter, but I'm going to just say, <laughs> I think it's fine. Right. I mean, that's for right. what that's worth. <laughs> I know what that's right. worth. I was brought up in in software piracy, so maybe I'm not the best person to ask. But mm. as long as you give the money in in the legitimate way, then however you choose to enjoy that game. Is up to you. Tell to the to the person who doesn't have a sofa but an arcade machine behind <laughs> him. Yeah. Well, but then we know where the priorities are, <laughs> right? Yeah. I, I once had a I once had a coworker showing my living room, and she was like, "You can't bring woman in here." <laughs> like, okay, well then probably probably you are the wrong woman or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we are getting derailed a bit. Um, <laughs> well, you you can you can tell people you know you know the interviewer quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I don't don't mind sharing about myself. Yeah. Anyway, so so the goal is to finish the game. I I guess um, you said you are working on improving parts of the intro. Is there anything else that that you are still working on, or is the game basically finished and we can we can have it in the second quarter? Uh, so yes, I need to finish upgrading those graphics in the intro. I need to I need to finish testing chapter five. I'm currently doing that right now. Then there's chapter six, so I have to kind of work on that chapter. That hasn't even started. I mean, I know the broad strokes of what's happening in that chapter, but I need to like write out the design document for that chapter and then make it. So that's going to be the biggest part um, of the game that still has is left to be done. But 
I think it'll be a relatively shorter chapter. And I say that now, it's probably wrong, but I, I say that now. So there's still to do, still to do is intro graphics, uh, finish testing chapter five, send um, the whole game, chapter, first five chapters to my testers. Chapter I need to do chapter six and then chapter seven, which is like I said, that quiz portion and like the epilogue part and then overall testing. So I say second quarter of 2023, but I've been promising a lot of things and and it hasn't happened yet. So uh, we can all wait and see and be surprised together awesome. Be because it's funny. I did I did a YouTube a YouTube uh, I pushed part of a YouTube um thing with this uh, youtuber called vcheck 83 every year in the in december he he kind of gets a bunch of indie game developers together in one video like he edits edits it all and he asks them what are your plans in the following year and he asked me last year and i'm in that and i'm in his last year like december 2022 version of that where i say i plan on releasing my game next year i was also in the december 2021 video saying the exact <laughs> same thing so I don't know anything. I I could keep pushing. I pushed back the release date maybe three or four times. It could happen again, but oh please, <laughs> this year at least. At least this year, I'm really, really, I really think this year, especially because I've, I've said, as I said, I'm saying I'm not taking any more contracts on until this is finished. I just need to focus on this completely. And but focusing on that, of course, it's not even just the gameplay. Like we we were saying, it's also promoting the game and you know trying to get the word out as much as possible. And so that also, of course, takes time. So I mean, you're you're going by word of mouth a lot, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I saw you have you have a verified Twitter account, so you must be seen important. <laughs> that that was funny. I wasn't even planning on applying because this is back in the days when you could apply for that, right? And they would just check your credentials. And before then Twitter you... blew. Yes, before Twitter blew, before all that stuff. So actually, I'm kind of worried sometimes that people will see the check mark and think that I I'm paying for Twitter. I am not paying for no, Twitter. No, no, it's actually saying okay. it's actually saying if you if you if you hover over with the mouse, yeah. it says like this is like the classic way of yes, and the person might not be important. And whatever. <laughs> they were maybe we maybe thought they were important at some point, but we don't care anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I did notice on mine. I did notice on mine that if you do mouse over, it says what you just said. But if someone was to just glance at it, they might just get this impression that I'm paying for Twitter. And I'm not, and I won't pay for Twitter. If they ask me for money... But, but you won't ask them to remove it, right? No, <laughs> I'm not asking them to remove it. But if it disappears one day, then, uh, you know, I might be able to be a little sad. But then I'll mm. it'd be fine. Um, because... I, I just I kind of applied just to see like everyone else that applied. I well can I get can I get the verified thing? So and so happened um, that I that I did for whatever reason because I know other people that applied that are you know just as so called legitimate or even more so that didn't. And I just think it's almost like depending on who's evaluating and who, if they had a good day that day or not. You know, like it's kind of, it's it seems pretty like scattershot the way the way they actually grant those. So, but not anymore. It's, yeah, anymore. well, not well. Clearly, yeah, not anymore. It's it's very straightforward. If if you if you were to, it's not available in Germany, so I can't I can't get Twitter Blue. Oh no! So even if you wanted to give Elon your nah. money, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. I mean, hey, I'm a hobby project, and and we have a Wikipedia entry. Yes, How many people incredible. can say that exactly. about themselves? You know? Yeah, that's yeah. that's very cool. I don't have a Wikipedia entry. I don't think. But nowadays, the problem is. 
I I made some interviews where where I was asked to make an English version of the Twitter, even mm -hmm. of important industry people from the game industry. Twitter, uh, Twitter, it's Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is like, nah, delete. How weird! So you are instead you are more likely to be deleted nowadays. Oh yeah, I don't really know how 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 Wikipedia really works. Very very uh, strict. Very strict. Uh, uh, but, but I am in terms of internet stuff. The most proud thing I, I am is if you just Google the Crimson Diamond, I am the first result. I know that. That's what that I. That is very. That very. Ha it makes me very happy. I mean, what else could be on the first place? Well, it's a very generic name, so I can imagine it could be other things that are called that. But it just so happens that it's a generic name that wasn't being used very much, and so I'm getting the most use out of it, which which is awesome. True, true. Well, I mean, here we are doing this interview. Exactly, yeah. and also my name is not that common, so if you just Google my name, it's going to be the you know I'm going to be the first result, which is kind of nice. I did both. Yes. Yeah, see, there you go. Yeah, that that's so those are both advantages, which are which are which are nice. Which is interesting. Where can people find your stuff? You can find everything on thecrimsondiamond.com. That has links for everything, including the the streams that I do on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern. There is a link, of course, to the Steam page for to get the demo. You can also get the demo on Itch.io. There's links for my Twitter. There's links for Twitch. Mastodon I'm also on. There is also links for, I've got some merch stores. So I've got something on Fourth Wall and some Society6 merch page. Uh, you can watch the trailer on there. And and lastly, I do have a monthly gazette that comes out sort of mid every month. It's called the Crimson Gazette. And on that is kind of like a compendium of everything that's happened in, in the month. So that includes links to live streams, dev update. I do like a craft corner. I, as an artist, I've been doing some sketching, like a little sketching uh, segment there. And of course, stuff like this. So of course, Yorg's uh, podcast episode well i'll link all that stuff in, in next in next month's gazette as well so it's a kind of like a one-stop shop for everyone um who's interested in getting just monthly updates to their email box all the stuff that you know has gone on during the intervening 30 days or so um, and i just i highly recommend it if you're if you're interested in just keeping up to date with what's going on with the game awesome yeah. awesome so Thank talk you. to you soon okay <laughs> have bye a good yeah. afternoon you bye too bye, bye. <laughs>